Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. It took a pandemic to get me to ride a bicycle to work. I live in London and studies show that the air quality along a busy road is actually cleaner than the air quality on my train ride to the office. I do my best to think about personal sustainability, yet I only started biking to work in March when the term social distancing was already firmly in the lexicon. People all over the world have made major changes to their daily lives in the past weeks and months, far more significant than my morning commute when I used to go into the office. So from a BNF perspective, we're going to explore what these changes mean for road transport as well as clean energy. On the show today are Colin McCarricker and Logan Goldie-Scott. Colin is head of advanced transport at BNF and Logan is head of clean power research. They're going to give us their views on how clean energy and transportation are changing right now and what we might be able to expect in the future. BNEF is currently writing a series of indicators reports on the impact of COVID-19 on the industries we cover. These include indicators reports on clean power, as well as global road traffic. These reports are available at BNEF.com and on the Bloomberg terminal at BNEF Go. And please remember that BNEF does not provide investment or strategy advice. And we have a full disclaimer that can be found at the end of the show. Hi, Colin. Hi, Logan. Thank you for joining today. Hi, Dana. Good to be here. Hey, Dana. Great to speak. So that was Colin's voice first and Logan's voice second, for those who are wondering. Now, one of the things that is really great about recording remote podcasts is that we actually have the ability to bring in guests from different parts of the world. We have this lovely studio in London that I haven't stepped foot in in about three weeks, but now we're joined today by Logan, who is located in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is where I'm originally from. I guess we've got a little bit of a swap going on here. And I am curious, from a city that has a lot of mobility, when's the last time you were in a taxi? So San Francisco ended up actually moving relatively early. So we've had shelter in place since March 16th. And then I was actually in an Uber on March 15th. So that was my final social interaction that wasn't via camera and via screen. And uh, the final time I was in an Uber. So it's been a couple of weeks. Colin, when's the last time you were in a taxi? For me, it's further back, actually. So uh, we were out in San Francisco, actually, for the San Francisco Summit. And the theme is the future of mobility. So we were all there at the beginning of February for that. And that's the last time I think I was in an Uber. Once I'm back in London, I'm a big advocate of cycling everywhere. So despite being someone who spends their time deeply immersed in auto markets, I prefer two wheels over four whenever I can. So it was that same week before I kind of moved into my house full time. But I must say, the last couple of days at work, I started renting bikes and I've become a bit of a cyclist and I think that will stick with me for a while. So then that leads to another important point and something that we are tracking now here at BNEF. So Colin, we're looking at transport and we're looking at traffic and congestion. 
what are we seeing right now and what sort of developed over the last couple of weeks? Because we are tracking this on a weekly basis around the world, are we not? We are. And what you're seeing is predictable in some sense. Everybody's been told to stay in their house. And for the most part, everybody is staying in their house. Traffic has plummeted. Use of public transit has plummeted. It's not all on the same timeline. Some of them are sort of a week or two staggered, or in the case of, say, China versus the US or Europe, it's more like a month or two, but you see sort of the same wave. And when you look at the data really closely, you see the ramps down very steeply. People really stop moving around when these shelter in place rules or these lockdowns come in. And then we're starting to see that move again in China. We're starting to see much more people moving around. It's still not back to pre COVID levels, but that ice is starting to thaw and people are moving around pretty much in all forms more than they were at the height of this. So it kind of looks like about a 10-week wave that peaks around week five or six and then starts to come down. Hopefully, that's the pattern we see in other countries as well. But of course, that's hard to predict right now. So is this individual transport or are we also seeing a pretty massive slowdown in logistics? So logistics is a bit less affected, it looks like. And I think this lines up with everybody's personal experience, right? They're still ordering parcels on Amazon and grocery trucks are still moving things around. So some of that has been a bit more resilient than personal mobility because some of it is critical and we need to get more goods delivered or at least the same amount of goods delivered in quite a few cases. But even that is down in some places. Well, you think about how much stuff has moved around for, say, the construction industry or just commodities being moved by road and, and rail and things like that. So that is down as well, but probably it looks like a little bit less dramatically than on the passenger side. And then what is the actual impact this is having on emissions and then as Second, but related note, air quality, because I've seen some pictures of the Himalayas visible from India for the first time in several decades, or even pictures of Los Angeles in the valley and having these beautiful blue skies and the ability to see hills nearby. Is air pollution down by a ton or are we just seeing a short-term kick in air quality? I mean, it's noticeably down. If you look at pretty much any measure of air quality, whether it's NOx emissions or particulates, they're pretty much all way, way down. Overall CO2 emissions, of course, too, as you'd expect. And so, yeah, you are seeing urban air quality dramatically change. I mean, I'm here in central London and looking out from my window, not only is the sky a different shade of blue, but you can see stars. That's certainly not something you would have seen at any point previously in the 10 years that I've lived here. The open question is how much of that stays versus how much of that just returns to normal. And I think there are some big unknowns in that right now, but certainly we are in a very strange and unique window in which urban air quality is dramatically better than it's been in living memory, I think. So I am enjoying nice air quality, I must say. And I've already been somebody who's been pretty fascinated and enthusiastic about electric vehicles. Now, the question is, do you think other parts of the world will be equally as enthralled by electric vehicles? And will they, when we come out of this, fare the same as, better than, or worse than internal combustion engines, because with the backdrop of all of this is also an extraordinarily low oil price, and a low barrel price also makes internal combustion engines much cheaper to operate. Yeah, there's a lot of moving pieces in that question of, do they fare better or worse? Because there's a lot of moving pieces in what's driving EV adoption. I think in the long term, so we go out five to 10 years, I don't think much has changed. Look, the battery technology is going to continue to get better. There's still rising pressure around CO2 emissions. There's this pressure around urban air quality. I don't think any of that's going away. But in the short term, there are really big questions. So you're probably heading for the worst year on your drop in auto sales, certainly since 
the financial crisis in 2008 and nine. The thing about the financial crisis is that it hit different countries at a more staggered time frame, right? So the US gets hit hard in 2008-9, auto sales plummet in 2009. Europe, it's a much more delayed hit. Asia doesn't get it as bad. All these sorts of things where it was a bit more staggered were pretty unique right now in that this is hitting everywhere quite at once, but pretty close. And cars are large pieces of discretionary spending from consumers. So in a time of big economic uncertainty, let alone a time where everyone's locked in their houses, people don't go out and buy a lot of cars predictably. So this is going to be a very tough year for automakers, for sure. The question then is, do EVs hold up better or worse than internal combustion engine vehicles? If it wasn't for this, all of this, you would have been heading for a record year for EV sales. Europe, especially sales in the first two months were doubling over last year because of this driver around CO2 regulations. China cut subsidies last year and sales fell in the second half, but it was probably going to rise again this year. So we were heading for this real record. I think that's off now, at least in unit sales. But I think you can probably make an argument that on a percentage basis, the percentage adoption, EV share of new car sales will be either flat or rising a little bit. If you look at most sort of conventional auto analysts, they will say that EV sales are going to get hit harder by this than internal combustion engine vehicles. And that's because on average, they're more expensive. And generally in economic downturns, more expensive things get hit harder. Luxury cars go, but cheaper cars hold up a little better. Those are valid arguments generally. The arguments against that are that one, there are a lot of EVs out there with long backlogs of pre-orders that people have put a deposit on that some of the automakers are still ticking through those. So Tesla Model Y, for example, or the Model 3 in China. So I think a lot of those are still going to get shipped. And even, you know, in Europe, a lot of automakers last year were deliberately pushing orders into 2020 because they could then count them towards their fleet-wide CO2 target, which they faced fines if they missed this year, but there was no fines in place last year because the targets didn't apply until this year. So I think there's a bit of a backlog there that might help. The other thing is that these are still in large part early adopters who may be a little bit less sensitive. And then there's this question of policy support. So I've mentioned it there already, the European fleet CO2 targets. One of the things we've seen so far, even in March in Europe, where for about half of March, most of the big European economies were under lockdown. March EV sales in the UK up 133%. Overall internal combustion engine vehicle sales down 48%. Germany EV sales up 98% in March. Overall, internal combustion engine vehicle sales down 43%. France, um, passenger vehicle sales down 72%, EV sales up 12%. So it looks like at least in Q1, they're holding up a little better. The next three months are going to be really brutal for all parts of the auto market in North America and Europe. But in China, they're going to start to recover. And I think what you'll see is still a pretty strong push in China. And this is a bit uncomfortable, but my bet is that EVs hold up slightly better and that the adoption rate, the percentage of new sales is flat to a little bit up maybe this year over last year, but down in absolute terms. Well, you can add this to your predictions that you make for 2020, which we did a podcast earlier where we went into those. We did. Yeah. We can talk beginning of 2021 and see whether or not you were on or off on on this new prediction joining us a little bit later in the year. So In that, you know, given that there will be some reduced demand, since one of the many things that Logan has done for us here at BNEF is look very closely at the energy storage market. So he knows the battery space pretty intimately well. And one of the potential views on our side is that if you have a reduction in electric vehicle sales, given that they are the largest consumers right now of lithium-ion batteries, that this may depress prices for batteries and maybe therefore also battery metals. 
do we think that that will end up being something that will be felt short-term, medium-term, long-term, come to pass? So the longer-term trajectory for battery prices is fairly clear. We've observed this incredible reduction in battery prices, nearly 90% over the last decade. And we expect that to continue and battery prices to fall from sort of close to $150 a kilowatt hour today to nearly $60 by 2030. So that longer term trajectory remains relatively unaffected by these near term issues. As Colin mentioned around electric vehicles, there are so many different overlapping factors that will impact the battery price. We've looked at VC investment in Q1 in battery technology companies, lithium-ion companies. It looked very similar to VC investment that we saw in previous quarters. Clearly, there's a lag there, and this may drop off over the coming months. But many of these investments were from strategic investors, large automakers, where the emissions targets aren't going away, where desire for competitive, attractive vehicles is not going away, and that needs the highest quality battery. So longer term, we don't see this as a sort of particular disruption. The very immediate impact is that the uncertain demand has a really significant ripple effect across the supply chain. It's essentially a bullwhip effect. By the time that you actually get to the raw materials, the lithium, the nickel, the cobalt, that uncertainty is magnified hugely. And there were already issues from raw material processors and miners desperate for greater certainty from automakers. They were already complaining about that because the investment timeframes didn't line up. Like a miner wanted many more years of certainty than an automaker was willing to give them. This collapse in certainty around demand is hugely problematic and will make aligning those timings on uh, getting a mine, getting a processing facility and a battery manufacturing plant all online at the right times much, much harder now that you just do not have this visibility on demand. We have seen lithium and nickel production capacity um, around 10% has also been impacted by quarantine measures which is this sort of additional layer of disruption. And then delays surrounding COVID-19 also means that we don't expect cobalt production in the Democratic Republic of Congo to increase as we had in our early predictions. Instead, this year, we think that will be flat. So Logan, let's throw on the other hat that you know quite a bit about right now, the clean energy space. Our colleagues over in the Bloomberg economics team got an interview with the uh, head of logistics at Longi Solar, who was saying that these have been challenging times for them from a production standpoint due to some of the logistics concerns. Are we seeing supply chain issues and logistics as a challenge for what we would consider maybe some of the bigger clean energy markets, let's say wind and solar? Do you think that these supply chain issues are going to have a massive impact or is it going to be something further on the demand side? So let's start with supply, then we can sort of move on to demand. For solar, for energy storage, and for the domestic market for wind, China and China's supply chain is sort of hugely important. And it did face severe disruptions throughout Q1. China's almost completely resumed production now. So these factories are coming back online and ramping up back to their maximum capacity. So you have a few weeks of backlog, but production is coming back. Outside of China, some factories are also still operating in Europe and the US, but many have shut down due to sort of national or local shutdown orders. Well, actually, the other big thing is just related difficulties maintaining the safety of the workforce. 
So supply chain was severely disrupted. There were a couple of things in China that uh, that offset that. Many companies had started stockpiling um, ahead of Chinese New Year, and so you had greater inventory. So you knew that many of these factories were going to be either shut down or operating at a lower rate. This extended it, but there was some preparation built in. The demand story is much more uncertain. And for us, that is a much bigger concern in terms of understanding sort of broader decarbonization targets over the next couple of years. On the demand side, does it have to do with a lack of government attention because they're distracted and rightfully by these health concerns? Or does it have to do with consumer demand? I mean, explain why demand is so uncertain in the medium to longer term. So success more broadly is helped by continuity and economies of scale. So if you have those two things, success is likely to come your way. At the moment, that disruption on the supply chain caused sort of ripples in terms of the timing of getting projects installed on time. And so even though there's only a few weeks disruption, in the US, for instance, the schedule for cranes to get wind projects up and running, that's a very well-managed schedule. If there are any hiccups, that has a ripple effect across the board. So you do have the supply chain impacting demand. Companies are rushing to get projects built by end of year or by certain deadlines in order to get that government support. We expect some leniency in many markets. So that should ease things. But clearly, that's something that's just been a concern. The other piece is immediate government attention is clearly elsewhere. We've seen around half of total wind and solar capacity that was due to be auctioned in 2020 has now been postponed. Governments are not planning on running the auctions as they were, because clearly there are other priorities. And companies don't know how to bid into those auctions. And so we saw Vattenfall decide not to bid into an auction in Europe recently because of the broader uncertainty impacting their business. They didn't know where the appropriate place to bid was. And so you do see supply chain issues impacting the timing and thus this remuneration for these projects. You see near-term policy being pushed back. And there's also this issue around longer-term targets. Many observers that I've followed have said now is not the time to be talking about clean energy, to be talking about climate goals. This is a distant future. and We really need to focus on the sort of COVID-19 sort of pandemic right now. For me, that's a very misguided view. I think in any time where you're thinking about a long-term massive stimulus package or any type of nationwide support, you want to be aligning that near-term need with a longer-term aim as well. The fact that in some countries there is uncertainty around whether the government will continue to push ahead with their previous targets around decarbonization, I think that threatens many of these uh, sort of companies' longer-term goals as well. I think green stimulus is something that is chatted about quite a bit in the circles that we're in, but I would like to know, are we actually seeing any tangible moves into this in any country in the world, or is this just something that maybe people in our industry like to talk about? The one thing I can point to that we are seeing is out of China and is an indication that EV charging infrastructure might be part of that stimulus. The government has indicated that charging infrastructure might be one of the focus areas. Southern Grid, one of the power grid operators, has indicated that they're going to invest about $3.6 billion in charging infrastructure. That just came at the end of last week. So that looks like one. And we know governments do like shovel-ready infrastructure projects, right? You go back to the last financial crisis, 2008-9 in the U.S., things like the whole grid modernization effort, the smart grid, was a big part 
of the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act was pushing money into some of these infrastructure-ready projects where you could go and spend money and get things moving right away. Now, I do think there's sort of a hierarchy of needs. And in the places that are still in the very much the acute phase of this, this is all about managing the pandemic, managing the health crisis and the humanitarian crisis on that side of it. But then again, looking to China as an example, as sort of starting to come out of this and thinking where to go with how you push the recovery, I think it probably depends a lot on the politics of who's in power at the time. So you will have that reflected in the stimulus packages that come out. So I don't think, for example, in Europe, you will see a big relaxation of the push on the Green Deal or just sort of generally around the green economy that Europe is trying to push and and these 2030 targets that are in place. That would be very hard, I think, to justify given all the things that have gone into getting it to where it is. In the US, it's a bit more uncertain. I don't see much of a push coming on the clean transport side as a result of stimulus and and recovery efforts in the US. I think that is in line with also the the Trump administration's recent rollback of fuel economy standards, which of course are going to get tied up in court, but that's consistent with what they've said there. This is not a high area of priority. So I think a lot of this ends up reflecting the politics and the priorities of the groups that are in power in those countries today. And that means there's going to be a very big patchwork of types of stimulus measures and focus of those stimulus measures between countries. I agree completely. Here in the US, clean power and decarbonization is much more contentious than it is in most parts of Europe and many other markets. There was nothing relating to clean power in the first stimulus package that was passed here in the US. If anything is to make it into any upcoming stimulus package, which is still potentially a trillion dollar plus package, it will be a big fight from Democrats to get anything related to clean power in there. It's a much more contentious issue. In Europe, because of the EU Green Deal, it does look like there's sort of that longer term alignment and a broader desire, even if the details haven't been worked out, to do something that does align with that. And then we have smaller instances, like China is clearly the big one. But in Korea, they passed a stimulus package that included some relief for Korean solar installers. The Korean government is very keen for solar to continue to continue to be deployed in the country. They bumped up the subsidy in order to encourage further adoption. And Dana, those are all things at the national level. And that's, of course, where stimulus really comes in because the governments have the power to print money and, and spend money in a different way. But one of the interesting policy responses I'm waiting to see is what we talked about earlier on, this, this part about the city level. The medical data supports the idea that the mortality of the coronavirus, of COVID-19, is worse in places that have worse air quality. We know that places that have worse air quality lead to more respiratory problems. We know people with more background respiratory problems have a higher mortality rate when it comes to this. I think there's a real chance that that makes some people in cities angry, that their governments have not done more to tackle this faster. I would put myself in that category. I imagine you might as well, Dana. And I think there's a possibility that at the city level, that accelerates some action towards electrifying buses, towards electrifying taxis, just towards getting on with it. Some of the stuff we've been talking about for quite a while that has already started and is happening at scale, but could certainly happen faster. And we've seen templates for how it can happen faster. There's no trillions attached to that with a T or probably even with a B, billions going out on that. And there isn't the ability to borrow huge sums of money and get the gears, the economy turning again. But there is this element of legitimacy of of government and the priorities that they have and what citizens really want them to do. And I think there might be some interesting things that emerge from that at the municipal level as well as the national level. So there are some out there who think maybe we have 
reached peak carbon emissions and that we might actually be on the decline after this. But what I'm hearing for both of your industries is that that actually might still be lagging out there in the future. Now, I'm asking you guys to make tough predictions right here on the spot. But my question to both you, Logan and Colin, is at least for the spaces that you cover, so clean energy on Logan and advanced transportation for Colin, do you think we've hit peak emissions and will be on the decline, at least on the, in a decadal sense, when we get out of this? One thing we started tentatively saying a year and a half ago is that it actually looks like sales of new internal combustion engine vehicles might have already peaked. Now, that was really uncomfortable at the time because that was 2018, 2019. And we were saying, look, 2017 might have been a high watermark for that. So far, that is holding up and that will continue to hold up after this. So look, you're going to have internal combustion engine vehicle sales, overall vehicle sales globally are going to be lower this year than they were in 2017. They're going to be lower the year after. They're probably going to be lower in 2022. It's going to take a while for this to fully bounce back. By the time you get to that point, we're anticipating EVs are really starting to get cost competitive and their policy pressure is starting to ratchet up. So then they're getting into the sort of 5 to 10% of new vehicle sales. Then it's really hard to see internal combustion engine vehicles ever returning to those levels of 2017. So I think sales of new internal combustion engine cars in the passenger vehicle segment have already peaked. In the past, when I've made that in presentations, I've put a question mark at the end of the title slide. I'm taking the question mark out. I think they've peaked. That doesn't mean transport emissions overall have peaked, unfortunately. So we know aviation is still high and rising, of course, this year notwithstanding. We know shipping is high and rising this year notwithstanding. I don't think those are going to be on a good trajectory anytime soon. I think also trucking means that emissions from transport are going to keep rising. Now, when you look at overall emissions, you need to figure, okay, look, maybe some segments of transport are still flat or some are down slightly or some are rising. Is that enough to be offset by what's going on in the power sector? So I think we're not quite there yet, but I think road transport emissions are going to peak within the next 10 years. Passenger vehicles is going to peak before that. Right now, the fleet of internal combustion engine vehicles is still growing. But each year where we don't see them grow again, you're, you're sort of not locking in a bunch of further oil consumption that, from those vehicles that would stay on the road for 10 to 15 years. So what's happening right now is really significant. So in our annual new energy outlook exercise, in the 2019 outlook, you ended up with clean energy making up just over sort of half total generation. That was a more bullish view in terms of renewable energy adoption than what you saw from many of the oil majors from the IEA. Now, even in that BNF view, there was a huge gap between that and a two degrees scenario and that in a 1.5 degree scenario. And so the message was, even with this significant acceleration in installations for wind and solar, there's still much more needs to be done. Now is not the time to sort of take the foot off the pedal. This clearly complicates that. For wind and solar, we were, were expecting record years in 2020. As of Q1 2020, our outlook for global wind installations for this year is 12% than what we were saying in Q4 last year. The outlook from our sort of midpoint for solar is 8% lower than what we were saying in Q4 last year. So this certainly hurts things in that near term. If installations are down, it makes what was already a sort of gantuan task even harder. It doesn't mean that the pace of change cannot accelerate because greater awareness around emissions, around the benefits, the economic benefits of decarbonization, and around the economics. Wind and solar is, in many parts of the world, a cheaper way of producing uh, electricity than emitting alternatives. 
even before you account for any of the non-power sector related costs. So longer term, still more needs to be done. COVID-19 sort of doesn't change that. This does end up being a stumble. Now, what I think is particularly interesting around this is how it could impact the type of clean energy installations in place as well. Colin mentioned at the very beginning that many cars would be counted as discretionary spending. Now, utility-scale wind and solar doesn't tend to fall into that bucket, but distributed solar and distributed storage very much does. In terms of where the biggest impact on clean power has been off the back of COVID, the biggest impact has been in distributed solar and distributed storage. We reviewed what a number of market participants had said over Q1. So these are typically solar installers. In the US, these market participants seem to agree that sales were down 50% compared to what they'd expected in sort of January and February. Average number of permits was down 40% across California, Texas, New York, Florida, Nevada. So across clean power, this is a stumble. It makes an already hard task harder. Distributed clean power gets hit the hardest. So I think we'll have to continue to come back to this in the next five and 10 years. So let's keep this podcast and these interviews going. But I think one thing that is very clear today that peeling back the onion around what is something that's impacting industry right now and what will in the near term and then what will in the longer term is something that we're watching very closely and kind of monitoring as we look at how this is all evolving. So... I want to know, since we started this podcast today with, you know, an impact to how you're moving around or as the case may be not moving around since we're all recording from our homes right now, I want to know what has been the biggest change to the way that you work. For me, that's quite an easy one. It's that I spend half the day taking care of a one and a half year old at home. I love it. I'm having a great time. I know that's not the conventional answer from people who've been stuck at home with their kids, Um, And certainly balancing work is tough. One of the most difficult things, I think, is context switching, right? You sort of go from being intensely focused, trying to say something professional and trying to get a piece of work done or edit something and publish something to quickly dealing with somebody who's about to jump off a table. And so that's a huge challenge, but I think there's a lot of great things about it. I'm getting to spend more time with my one and a half year old son than I would if all this hadn't happened. So silver linings. So the the biggest change from my perspective is making sure that I'm speaking to the team frequently. There's so many moving parts at the moment. Everyone is juggling a huge workload and personal commitments. So it's making sure that everyone in the team is communicating, is happy, and is is not overworked. It's, it's really hard to balance your time if you're not leaving the house. So making sure that we retain some balance there as well. So Logan, that's a really good point. And I would say the biggest thing that has changed from my perspective since we have all started working from home has been that time has become incredibly fluid and that there's no start time, there's no stop time, there is parenting and working. And that is very evident by the fact that we are recording on what is a public holiday. So I'd like to say thank you, Logan. Thank you, Colin, so much for carving time out of your busy schedules to be here on the podcast. Thanks, Dana. It's always a pleasure. And yeah, very interesting times ahead. Everybody stay safe and take care. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Colin. 
Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.